Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee. I'm Charlotte Bond. I'm Lucy Hounsom. And I'm Frances Harding. And I write very strange books uh, for children and YA. (laughs) So young adult fiction is one of the best performing commercial fiction genres. And despite YA's popularity, or perhaps because of it, the genre is often looked down upon. Literary critics deride the quality of prose while mocking adults who read books for teenagers. But we at Breaking the Glass Slipper want to break down these negative perceptions and highlight the many things that YA fiction has to offer. We are very lucky to be joined in our discussion by Frances Harding, whose YA novel The Lie Tree won the 2015 Costa Book of the Year Award. So welcome, Frances. Hello. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, we are very, very, very excited to talk to you tonight. And uh, I know particularly that Charlotte and Lucy are very big fans of yours. So we, we'll try to keep oh, the fangirling, you, you know, <laughs> under wraps. <laughs> That's why Megan's oh, leading it. <laughs> no, I, I like fangirling. <laughs> right. So get to get us uh, underway. So why literature is specifically marketed to younger readers under the guise that they only want to read about young people. But, you know, this just seems really dismissive. I mean, why do we hold this view? Is this even a useful distinction at all? Well, I'm not sure we necessarily do assume that younger readers only want to read about younger people, uh, about young people, people their own age. Um, I mean, a lot of younger readers do want to, to read upwards and read adult books with adult protagonists. I mean, I certainly did. I didn't always tell my parents, though looking back, I'm, I'm not sure they would have minded all that much. But there's actually quite a lot of adult books with adult protagonists already available in the world. So it only seems fair for teenagers also to have access to some good, well-thought-out, unpatronising books which do have protagonists of their own age or maybe a little older whose lives and concerns in some way reflect theirs. Yeah, I mean, it it is... uh, (laughs) In terms of... um, I remember reading something about um, Ursula Le Guin when she came to write um, the Earthsea books. She was actually asked to write them because people felt that they weren't fantasy books for children on a kind of, on a level that challenged them as as well as being um, at a level that could really work for them. And, you know, that's interesting that that is an underrepresented area and we should be making sure that, you know, teenagers are encouraged to read and that they have stuff that they want to read and love to read and we should be encouraging that all the way. <laughs> well, I think I think there always have been books like that that have been sort of lurking but weren't necessarily categorised. There were there were books that we can now look back on, um, right back to, to, to times of Treasure Island, and say, well, actually, that's kind of YA. Yes. And books like Z for Zachariah, which had a huge amount of punch but wouldn't have been called YA in its day. And you know, everything written by Nicholas Fisk, again, supremely unpatronising. But the the label, the label is quite recent. And while I think it did start out very much as a marketing label, it's proved quite uh, a useful shelter and encouraging ground where it's then been possible for a lot of really interesting books to flourish. Yeah, you know, um, it always stumps me when people refer to A Wizard of Earthsea as as a children's book, because even though I first in, you know encountered it as a child, um, I find it, you know, it's, it's kind of... Well, it's it's not for children at all. It's it's a story, and it's why I don't necessarily like kind of classifying um, books by labels or by age groups because I feel like you know a story should be for everybody. I mean, I suppose when you come down to it, there are you know content worries, and there are some you know maybe bits of content that shouldn't really be made available to 
very young children. But um, I, I sometimes feel that, you know, we, we like to categorise things, um, you know, all too readily and that sometimes that kind of closes things down. I think that's very true. I mean, the way I think of it, books are a lot like people. They tend to be a lot of different things at once and never entirely any one of them. Um, and certainly when we're talking about classification of children's books, I think a lot of our adult self-image and our um, our own notions and nostalgia and self-deception about childhood comes into play. Um, I think we we sometimes we sometimes forget how extremely astute and self-aware and aware uh, a lot of children and young adults actually are. Looking back to my own teenage years, um, I don't remind my, I don't I don't remember myself frolicking in a kind of oblivious idyll. I was I was very aware of the adult world. Um, so more than anything else, when I'm when I'm writing, I try very hard not to dumb down, not to patronise, not to talk down. I think what uh, Francis was saying about being self-aware and astute, I think is is correct. But my memory of being a teenager, and maybe this is atypical, is just being um, really, really confused and also very insecure about, you know, whether my friends liked me, whether the, the boy that I liked really liked me and, you know, how well I was going to do. Um, and I think one of the reasons that sort of why has sort of appealed to a lot of adults is because if you think about, I hate to say it, Twilight. <clears throat> sorry, sorry, I, I feel terrible now. But Twilight, I remember when I read it, it was actually just like being a teenage girl. And I think that while Frances is right, that teenagers do tend to like to read a little bit above their age. I also think there's a really strong market for a load of teenagers who want to read about themselves and about how someone mm. in their situation would deal with stuff familiar to them. Um, and I remember oh, unfamiliar to them. No, no, but I, th I think that is one yeah. category. But I think there's also because I mean your books, Francis, are fantastic <laughs> and dark and I mean, weird and weird. I mean, uh, but then there's also you've got Never Fell in a Face Like Glass, trying to fit in with society, feeling like she's the outcast, and you've got um, is it Josh Ryan and Shell in Verdigree Deep who are trying to fit in with everybody around them and I think that will speak a lot to young teenagers and, and there will be some teenagers who really you know prefer Verdigree Deep because it is so much more grounded in reality and something more that they can they can kind of familiarize themselves with and say oh wow that that could happen to me rather than it being you know sort of somewhat removed someone slightly older who's a magical prince and all that and I'm not saying there's not a market for that I'm just saying that there's a very strong market for both. Yeah absolutely um, and one of the nice <laughs> One of the nice things about why is a genre to be writing in is you don't get much internal stigma. You don't get uh, realistic fiction looking down on genre fiction within YA. That, that's, that's just not there. And that's rather lovely. Yes, I, I, th I think there, there is. Um, I, I think that, that you, you do get some YA readers who are very, very definitely looking for that recognisability, that, that sense of very, very immediate affinity. Though an interesting thing, you, know, you, you, you use an example of um, people trying to fit in. The interesting thing is that in a lot of YA fiction, actually in also middle grade fiction, you often have a bit of a progression. You, um, you'll often have basically characters initially trying to fit in, trying to be what other people want them to be, trying to uh, well fit in with a dominant narrative and, and, and generally accepting it. And then gradually starting to recognise the ways in which they don't fit it, the ways in which there are cracks in, in, in the main narrative and starting to kind of 
question and challenge and find their own solutions. Um, one of the things I actually really like about YA and upper middle grade fiction is there's a sense of the main character bursting out of their own egg, you know, getting to a point where they're aware of its confines and hatching out of it to become something and someone new. Yeah, one of the things that to me that I love about YA fiction is the the kind of outsider story, because I mean, as a kid, and let's face it now as uh, an adult, I'm, I've always been the weirdo. And, you know, I'm okay with that. But, you know, in terms of when I was a teenager reading books, I liked reading stories about other people who were the outsiders, they were a bit odd, people thought they were a bit funny, but then, you know, the you know, not moral, but at the end of the book, you know, they realize that they're all right with who they are because they're, yeah. you know, they like themselves. And and that to me was really a, a, something that really drew me to why fiction. And I mean, absolutely. It's very liberating. It's very yes. empowering. And, and yeah, um, I, I, I was a weird kid. In some respects, I still am a weird kid or a weird kid old. <laughs> I mean, is there anything like that's very specific to YA that you feel is missing from something something that's more adult fiction? Um, this, I'm inclined to say no for the very simple reason that both YA fiction and adult fiction are incredibly varied. So it's very hard to think of something that is inherent to all YA fiction, or something that is missing from all adult fiction. <laughs> um, Labels, the labels we apply are useful in the sense that they give an approximate hint to the kind of thing that might be inside the book. None of them are comprehensive or watertight. Yes. However, YA, YA fiction does have tendencies that I rather like. And in fact, the same is true as well of, of, of some middle grade books as well. They tend to be well paced. Um, they tend to be inventive. And they're quite often charismatically fearless when it comes to taking on pretty complex or hardcore subjects. And as I say, they do have this questioning, challenging spirit to them, which I, I think is actually quite healthy and energising. Also, as a, from a personal perspective, as a writer, if you're writing YA or children's fiction, you don't have quite the same rigid genre expectations. You can get away with a lot more genre crunching and mixing things up, which I really enjoy. Well, that's true. I mean, if you go into a, a bookstore like Waterstones that we, we know very well, obviously, on this podcast, um, then you would get, you know, you get the horror and science fiction or you get um, historical fantasy or, or all the different ones, paranormal romance, all this kind of thing. But you just go in and you just get young adult and children's books and you could pick up anything in there. And I must admit, it's for readers, it's absolutely liberating. Whereas imagine for writers, um, certainly when I've been trying to decide where I want to pitch my stuff, it can be quite a nightmare trying to say, well, I've got this book that I don't really know where it fits in the adult world. But if I put it into <laughs> YA, it's just it's just accepted. And it's like, yeah, it's YA. So, I mean, it is a positive thing in, in that respect because you can have a book that defies all classification apart from the fact why it's suitable for teenagers. Yeah, when I was a teenager, I um, I didn't really feel like I liked a particular genre of book. You know, I would read realistic stuff. I'd read science fiction. I'd read fantasy. I'd read crime. I, you know, I'd re read all sorts of weird and wonderful things. And it was great because I didn't really feel kind of boxed in. But as an adult, I tend to feel a little bit self-conscious about going, oh, well, you know, no, I don't I don't like crime fiction or, you know, I, I read science fiction and fantasy. And those are the, the areas that I'm going to go to look for a book. 
but it, you know, yes, it's, it's nice. it gets tangled up with our self-image. Yes, yeah. No, um, and in even in even sort of within genre fiction, I have people saying, "Well, no, I'm the sort of person who reads hard SF, and I'm not the sort of person who reads fantasy." And it's it's all to do with the, the sort of person we think we are. Whereas there's not quite those same internal impediments when when with YA with YA readers. Um, so I mean, occasionally I've had people talk to me and say, "Well, you know, we're." Are you are you going to write some adult fiction? I mean, don't don't you find it terribly constraining writing for younger readers? And the answer is no. I actually find it quite liberating, um, because yeah, okay, it's like um, depending on what age group you're writing for, um, publishers may be less enthusiastic about you writing it incredibly graphic violence or incredibly graphic sex or or liberally peppering things with swear words. But actually. I don't tend to do those anyway. I, I tend to use more indirect methods to, of, of messing with readers' heads. Um, so writing YA or, or middle grade fiction doesn't really slow me down much. I must admit that I um, wrote, um, I, ghost, I ghost wrote uh, some YA fantasy recently and some children's books one after the other. And what Francis says about peppering it with swear words, I must admit, I came away from it and I swore in my personal life absolutely <laughs> amazingly because I spent all this time reining it back. And it's not really something I do in literature, but I did find myself constrained a little bit with the YA and the, the children's stuff, not necessarily from a, a you know topic point of view. I wasn't bothered about, you know, putting sex in or anything like that. But certainly the language, um, particularly of adults within the books, I found it quite difficult because this is a kind of adult that would swear. And in a sort of Terry Pratchett way, having them say poot doesn't quite, you know, match <laughs> up in, in the, uh, you know, in the characters they feel. I did invent some swear words. Um for my first book, because nobody can stop me saying chair fogging. <laughs> I mean, are there are there any other considerations that you you have when when going into write for you know a Y market? I mean, so we've talked about not wanting to condescend to readers, but it does absolutely. How does that uh, play out in terms of what you think about with vocabulary, what you think about structure? I mean, does that does it impact how you write things or or not? It impacts me in some ways, but generally for the better. I mean, I don't tend to dumb down my language. So I I go for I do go for complex and quite dark storylines um, and quite odd language. Uh, where it does impact me is it it keeps me honest. It means that I I keep more of an eye on pa- uh, on pacing. Now I have I have a tendency to get flowery and less watched. And I have this terrible metaphor addiction. So if you read one of my books, there's a lot of metaphors there. You have no idea how many got cut out before we went to print um, <laughs> and how much got cut down for pacing. Because with, with some kinds of adult readers, you can get away with sort of, you know, digressions and, and, and being a little bit pretentious and things. Um, whereas um, younger readers, quite sensibly, will give you short shrift and quite right too. So actually... Writing for younger readers helps me rein in some of my pet faults. It's true, and because you've obviously, you can't, it's it's not that you're dumbing down, but you're presenting it in a, a way that obviously young adults are going to understand, and you're sort of trying, like you say, metaphors are quite good because you take something that is um, understandable to your reader who maybe doesn't have a lot of experience, because now that I'm 
however old I am, I look back on teenage me and go, wow, I really didn't know as much stuff. And I know that people told me, oh, you'll know more when you get older. I was like, yeah, yeah, right. And it's quite true. And I think having metaphors in there is a good way of, um, you know, of encouraging young readers to imagine, particularly I noticed it. You should say that actually I did make a note of it when I was reading through um, A Face Like Glass of how many metaphors they were. Um, and it, <laughs> I'm but, so sorry. That's all right. <laughs> and I, I'm amused now to find that there were even more. Oh, some yeah. of them were brilliant and really helped me understand this complex in like insanely complex world where cheeses give you visions and wine gives you prophecy and all this kind of stuff it was you know and I think that can be helpful it is that's probably the weirdest book I've ever written uh, and when I when I was planning it I, I got to a certain point um and I have this this terrible fear of of repeating stuff I'd done before or that other people have done. And I and I ran this entire concept past a friend of mine saying, "Do you think this is right? Do you think it's too derivative?" And she just looked at me and said, "No, Francis, it's whacked out." <laughs> <laughs> but you know, whacked out in the best of ways. Because oh, it's... thank you very much. I loved it. I thought it was utterly creative and I've never read anything like it. So you can forget derivative. It's it's very unique. Can I just say how much I like the idea of a paradribble, a little parasol that you put up <laughs> to protect yourself from cave dribbles. I thought that was that Thank was my you. favourite bit. <laughs> to be honest, it, it sounds like everyone, every writer should try to write within the parameters of why it sounds like it, it's a, a good skill to learn and it reigns in some of our worse (laughs) I think people should people should write whichever story is talking to them and the thing is um I didn't I don't write to a label any more than I write to a market I write for a younger version of me because if I if I tried to uh, uh, imagine the massed hordes of a demographic what Mm. um, basically waiting for a book I would go fetal with stage fright um (laughs) Um, whereas one reader is imaginable, so I write I write the books I write the books I write, and then see what label p- labels people apply to them. And well, the last two are definitely YA. The first six, some people say they're middle grade, some people say they're YA. I mean, they've both got they've mostly got protagonists who are about twelve years old, which is sort of on the cusp between uh, middle grade and YA, and then they're sort of dark and twisty and and complex and oh and touch upon you know little light things like like race and gender and class and um overtones of genocide stuff like that um so nowadays a lot of them tend to be referred to as ya apparently horrible to classify Talking about what you were saying, just picking up on that, I know when I read Verdigree Deep that it kind of started off and I was like, oh, yeah, I know where this is going. I've read this kind of book before. And then suddenly it took a really dark twist and there was even elements of sort of body horror in it. Oh, um, yes. At the, <laughs> at the end, I've put in my review, happy but poignant. And it was kind of, it was not the, the YA I was expecting, the sort of YA all middle grade, because like you say, they're, they're a bit younger, these ones. That, that I was kind of kind of expecting. So I can imagine yes. that that book would be difficult for uh, for a bookseller to put on their shelves if they read it. Yeah, I, te- I sometimes, if I, <laughs> I sort of describe it as um, psychological horror for 10-year-olds with um, psychotic supermarket trolleys. Which yes. is a bit of a niche genre. I'm, I'm, I've had, uh, I've had uh, somebody very kindly describe uh, A Face Like Glass as cheese punk, 
which mm. may be in a genre of one or possibly two. Um, and um, somebody, oh, sorry, um, Professor Farah Mendelssohn has described um, my third book, Gulfstruck Island, as the funniest book you'll ever read about genocide. <laughs> so I don't know. I, 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 I seem to be moderately pigeonhole proof. <laughs> well, that is a very good thing. <laughs> No, it is. <laughs> I mean, I, I suspect it made, made, made me hard to pitch in the past, though. I, I may not have been making life easy for people. Well, if you can make it work, I think that's brilliant to sort of defy um, categorization because nobody wants to be stuck in, in the same thing. I didn't exactly I, do that on purpose either. I just, I write the story, I, I want, um, well, I write the story that I feel wants to be written and I don't like writing the same thing twice. Yeah, well, I mean, we've kind of covered this, you know, that that a lot of your books are very different and weird, which is great. <laughs> but where do like you. where do you get this inspiration from? I mean, how do you? What sparks this these ideas for you? Everything is a short answer. I mean, I I have been asked. Well, every author has been asked variants upon where do you get your ideas from. Um, I am always tempted to say either eBay or I steal them from your dreams while you sleep. Um, <laughs> but the truth is, everywhere, everywhere, um, most writers have a part of their brain that's like a deranged magpie and is always looking out for shiny things, um, including doing quite intense conversations with friends or conversations that you, that you eavesdrop upon on public transport, oddments at museum, historical anecdotes. Um, items in newspapers, things you glimpse through bus windows, places you visit, anything. I, I wrote an entire short story based on a conversation I overheard about a stray cat that had been discovered mysteriously in shock and they couldn't work out what she'd seen that it had that, that effect on her. Um, I wrote another short story based on a dream, another one, due to the fact that through a bus window, I saw a girl with red hair running out into heavy traffic just so that she could very carefully pick up a, a dead but uncrushed pigeon and run off and gently place it on the pavement. Um, I overheard somebody talking about a time that somebody tried to kill him. You did all these things, everything, everywhere. Wow, wow your journeys to work are very different to mine. <laughs> My journey to work is a 10-yard commute. <laughs> so do you ever actually, you're talking about obviously friends and running things past friends and sort of overheard stuff. Do you have young adults in your life, like cousins or nephews or nieces or anything, that you kind of run stuff past or they say something and you go, oh, yeah, I could put that in. Or do you like sort of go, I've got this idea. What do you think? And they're like, no, I've kind of read that one, Francis. So it's this book over here. <laughs> well, I, I seem to be a kind of generic purpose auntie. I have some genuine nephews, but they're, they're quite small. But I, I seem to be a kind of stand-in auntie for um, a lot of um, for a lot of my friends' children, and I have three godchildren. Uh, in fact, one of them, uh, who is now going on twelve, as I think she's going to, going on twelve this week, um, it's like me a, a massive book file, and. Um, and so I, I tend to I tend to throw books at her, not not physically, but 
in, in terms of books that have been sent to me, which I then read, I then pass on to her. And so I do sort of slightly look at her and think, I shall call you Mini-Me. <laughs> Are you going to buy a hat? That's the question. Oh, I'll, I'll let her choose her own hat. It's a very personal thing. Fair enough. I mean, we... <laughs> We we mentioned that um, the library won the Costa Book of the Year award, and I mean this is a very prestigious prize. And again, you know, it's it's kind of talked about that most of the books are for an older audience, and yours is one of the very few for a younger audience that's that's won that prize. I mean, how do you um, go about sort of? Because I know people tend. To, some people do look down on YA. I mean, how do you approach them when they come to you with that kind of attitude? Or, you know, have you ever experienced any pushback from someone with that kind of attitude? Well, I think, I think anybody who writes children's fiction or YA fiction would have come across some of it. And and some of it, some of it's actually innocently intended, you know. You, know, you, you, you mentioned that you write children's book and... And you'll talk, you find that the person you're talking to assumes that that's basically all picture books. <laughs> you know, the, one of the standard questions you get is, do you do the illustrations too? Um, and you get people asking, actually relatively innocently, well, when, when, you've, when you've done some children's book, are you going to move on to adults' books? When, when are you going to be writing real books? <laughs> yes. When are you going to be writing real books is a question we get quite a lot. And it's actually innocently meant. Um and then you do get some sort of genuine sort of snootiness, deliberate snootiness about YA children's fiction. You, you know, you get the articles that explain that, you know, the popularity of YA or children's fiction is a sign of either, I don't know, the corruption the corruption of, of youth or the infantilization of adulthood or something like that. It's a bit different each time, really. But, um, you know, you watch them go by. But I can't really bring myself to be all that upset about them because... To be, to be honest, I, I always get the feeling that I'm having more fun in my writing life than they are. I mean, the analogy I ended up using at one point, do I think the I think it was during the YA Book Award, um, was imagine a bouncy castle. Imagine a castle-sized bouncy castle, the best, the best in the world, with bouncy drawbridges and a bouncy dungeon and bouncy portcullises and everything. And imagine you have a huge number of young adults bouncing on it and adults and, and smart 10 year olds and, and, and you know, large numbers of people. Um, and from time to time, you will get adults, solitary adults who come by and shout, stop it. What's wrong with you all? None of you should be enjoying this so much. At which point I could get off the bouncy castle and argue with them. Or I could just say, really sorry you feel that way. Boing. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting when I, I've read a lot of sort of data around it that actually when it comes down to it, it's about 55 to 60% of people reading YA are adults. And yet there's still this kind of stigma around adults reading YA, which just seems silly to me because you should be able to read whatever you want to read. And if you enjoy that, read it. I, I Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. Um Tom Pollock wrote a, a, a very good blog post, actually, and I can't remember the name of it, but it was basically about the value in writing, in, in basically in reading books that are not about you, that are about people different from you, and in fact, books that are not aimed at your demographic. Because what are books for if they're not? I mean, aside aside from entertainment, but 
well, one of the golden things about books is they're a kind of telepathy. They're uh, one of the most magical forms of induced empathy that we have. Um, so yes, read about people that aren't you. Um, some people, I mean, some adults are, are not going to get on with YA fiction, and that's fine too. But I think I, I think it can be extremely rewarding. Um, as I say, um, there there is this this challenging, questioning, slightly iconoclastic element. This this impulse to question the dominant narrative in a lot of uh, you know, and, and make your own judgments in a lot of YA fiction. And actually, I think that's quite a useful mindset to harness, whatever your age. You were saying earlier about um, all the books you listed for, that could be read by teenagers. But where I grew up, um, we had a we didn't have our own library. We had one of those little um, library vans that drives around and um, that you can get on when you're at school and pick up your books and things. And as I grew older, I never really found the books that were young adults appropriate so I had children's books or adults books I think it was Tim Levin I was talking to about this the other day that I ended up reading Stephen King as a yeah as a very young adult because there were apart from Goosebumps and you know the wonderful Robin Jarvis which is very definitely kid stuff there was nothing in the middle so I tend to really like the YA stuff and I tend to read it because I would love to have read that as a kid and I imagine my, whenever I read them I am that 17 year old again reading it and I wonder if a lot of people who sort of look down on it are of a generation that go well I never had that and I don't see you know how it's of any use whereas <laughs> I look at it and go god I never had that I really wish I had when I was a teenager and well, it's absolutely great. I mean th that's the thing basically that this is this notion that oh no oh, you know, oh YA YA is 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 dangerous for children because look look it has some of it has swearing and sex and violence and I remember being a teenager you know we didn't have YA as a go-to so what happened is that basically uh, most of my friends were reading Stephen King uh, and Jackie Collins. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, that was the other one. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the thing is, actually, yes, I mean, YA, a lot of YA does handle sex and violence, but it often handles it um, in a more weighted way. You know, there's there's consequences to it. It um, it actually considers the emotional implications of it in, well, funny enough, a more mature way than a lot of adult fiction. A lot of adult fiction will treat sex and violence sort of like a condiment, just to spice things up a bit. Whereas I, th I think, to be honest, why fiction handles it rather better. I completely agree and I think that's such an important distinction to draw um, between you know the way that YA handles difficult topics and because I was the same you know when I, I didn't have any kind of YA books to read there was no bridge between you know you know the world of um, children's books and the world of adult books and so I was exposed to you know I was reading fantasy but there were an awful lot of uh, demonic sex rituals <laughs> <laughs> in fantasy <laughs> which is not so much fun when you're 15 14 15 year years old and your yeah. imagination is getting the better of you I have to say that some some discreetly you know emotionally well handled uh sex scenes or any kind of any kind of physical violence or emotional violence that anything kind of that you would typically encounter in an adult book that would have been very welcome at that point <laughs> in my life <laughs> yeah I, th I think but I think I think you've I think you're right. I think basically there's there was a time when basically I, I, I was in a panel with Adrian Tchaikovsky and he said something quite similar. He was saying that basically when he was in his teens, it it was sort of 
fantasy and science fiction was regarded as your transitional phase. You know, you move from child's, um, children's fiction to that, and then possibly onto adult fiction. Um, and I'm wondering if that has also partly accounted for the, the the stigma that fantasy and science fiction, another another incredibly rich and interesting and diverse um, set of genres, has retained because some people still have this lingering sense that it's in some way synonymous with adolescence. Hmm. It's interesting you should men- mention fantasy because one of the things that I've seen, obviously, or a lot of us have seen in fantasy, is that there are a lot of teenage protagonists um, or, you know, young adult protagonists or if they give the hobbit you know people who can be considered naive going on and i think because fantasy is quite often about a quest and it's certainly about finding things mm. and discovering the world that makes it perfect for teenagers and it always has and i now think that fantasy writers i we did have this discussion um the three three of us um myself megan and lucy the other day about sometimes if you're a fantasy writer writing teenage protagonists if you're a woman it automatically gets lumped in ya whereas actually it's it could equally be adult it doesn't necessarily have to be ya just because it's got protagonists but they do sometimes go well you know it's a a woman writing teenage uh, teenage protagonist must be ya and it's like well it could be either you know it doesn't have to be fantasy has always been one of those ones that like you say, kind of crosses genres almost, and it could be young adult, could be adult. It, it's just a, a good book. <clears throat> cough, cough, I'm right here. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that is the problem that I've encountered with my books. Um, for that very reason, I chose to write with a 17-year-old protagonist, and um, a lot of people assume that it's YA because of that, and uh, it isn't. Uh, I don't mind uh, that that young people read it I think it would it's a perfect crossover book uh anyone who you know might like to kind of graduate from reading YA to because it's not it's not full of kind of graphic violence either so it's I think it's quite a nice bridging book um but I just going back to those labels and that that it's problematic especially for women um I I, that's that's the problems that, that I've Uh, encountered in you know out there amongst the readership that there's this kind of mistaken belief that because I've used a a teenager and because I'm a woman um it's naturally going to be about you know a grand epic romance rather than you know (laughs) normal epic fantasy (laughs) content and I'm like well this is a dreadful sweeping generalization very very annoying as well that's uh, that's very interesting and it's um because well, because your character's seventeen, that's really upper end of YA, isn't it? So, uh, um, going on adults. So, ooh, yes, that that really is. Yes, that's that's on the cusp. I mean, obviously, my my characters, my, my protagonists tend to be rather younger than that. And I'm wondering if I've because a lot of my characters have actually been about twelve. I guess I've sort of ducked under that romance expectation. Mm, yeah yeah that's, um, this I mean what you've told me doesn't surprise me I think I think there probably is a certain amount of that sort of assumption in the um in the wider industry um I'm aware that I think I've been rather lucky I I somehow seem to have ended up cheerfully straddling a number of different classifications actually it doesn't sound very comfortable but you know what I mean um <laughs> <laughs> it's actually so, a, I mean, quite an accurate image. <laughs> I so really I mean, I, I am a children's writer. You know, clearly that's that's not ambiguous. I I am a YA writer. That's 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 fairly obvious. Um, but I also seem to have been recognised as a fantasy writer. 
which is really nice. I mean, whilst I'm, I am likely to end up on a YA or children's fiction shelf in a shop, um, I, fantasy and science fiction conventions have been inviting me for years, which is lovely, and have had no reservations at all about throwing me into panels uh, alongside adult fantasy writers. And um, back in 2015, uh, my sixth book, Cuckoo Song, actually won the Robert Holstock uh, Award for Best Novel at the British Fantasy Awards, which, so I mean, I, and that same book actually also got shortlisted for the James Herbert um, Horror Award and uh, one of the British Science Fiction Awards. So, I mean, you're collecting case... speculative fiction genres there, <laughs> aren't you? <laughs> yes, genre straddling, genre straddling. <laughs> so, I, I have, I have found the genre community to be pretty non-judgmental about the fact that um, that I'm writing for younger readers. That that doesn't seem to have slowed me down much. No, I think that's great. Uh, I think they're particularly welcoming. Um, that I've found that uh, as a community. Yes. Absolutely, absolutely. So I I sort of feel like I'm in a good overlap because on the one hand. Um, I'm in children's YA fiction, which doesn't really have a stigma uh, uh, about fantasy. And also, I'm sort of the genre community, which has less of a stigma about children's and YA fiction than perhaps um, the wider adult fiction community might have. So it's, it's, it's quite a nice place to be, really. I mean, I like to read a lot of YA because... I find, obviously, maybe yours are quite dark, but I find even the the darker YA novels tend to have a sense of optimism and hope. And sometimes I find a lot of the fantasy and science fiction written for adults is very bleak and depressing, and there's no let up from that. And I like dystopias, I love all that kind of thing, but I I like it to, to have some kind of feeling of optimism. I mean, do you feel like that that you find that with YA that there's it's slightly more optimistic? Some of them are pretty darn bleak, and some do end on something like a, a downer ending. But I think a lot of them have a sense of possibility. Yes, even yeah. the ones that have a, a bleak ending, there's still this sense of potential and the potential for change. Um, yes, I mean, I. I there, there are there, <laughs> there are a lot of YA books that are supremely unfluffy, but at the same time, there's not there's not a sense of jadedness or actual despair. Um, so, yeah. like Hunger Games, um, you know, is very bleak. It's very, you know, it has a lot of dark things going on. But throughout, there's that there's just that modicum of hope throughout, which I sometimes find lacking in some of the in the books marketed to adults um, and. And it's that hope that really is, is what drew me to speculative fiction when I was a kid. You know, that's what I like, this idea of hope and this idea of what could be and that we can change things and there is possibility for change. And I think that's what continues to draw me back to YA sometimes yes. because there is more of that, at least from, from the things that I'm I'm reading at the moment. Maybe I'm just reading the wrong things. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think, I think potential the idea of potential is at the same time optimistic and subversive and integral to both fiction for younger readers and genre fiction because it has at its core the idea that the world need not be this way i think you're right and i think um one of my 
all-time favourite books, which I read once and I'm not quite sure I could bring myself to read again, is um, Sarah Pimbra's The Death House, if you've read that. Ah, well, talking about what Mika was saying about hope, I mean, um, I tried to talk about it without giving away spoilers, but The Death House is basically, um, it's for children, young adults, as in the protagonist's children, young adults, um, who are sent to this place because they have a, a disease that is pretty much terminal. And all the way through, there is a massive sense of hope. Um, and the ending was not what I expected it to be. And yet, at the same time, still managed to to be hopeful and to give a sense of of change, you know, and things things that were changing, maybe not for the protagonist, but in the future. And I thought that was, um, that was a really good YA book, and it was very, very different. But it was just the way that Pimbra managed to combine the absolute certainty of death with yet still somehow having having hope and having the human interaction that we all value so much particularly in the darkest times I think that's a good one <laughs> yeah I didn't even see that as a YA book at all when I read it <laughs> not YA at all I just maybe I don't classify things like that but I don't know it just um it just struck me as a deeply chilling story but I think it then it then goes back to this idea I suppose of well I would prefer to call it YA YA appropriate but I suppose another option to call it is crossover where you've got a book that is probably designed for adults but could easily be read for teenagers yeah and I think the the death house falls firmly in that camp it is it was like Francis was saying it's a book that Sarah has obviously written because she's got this idea and she wants to run with it and it wouldn't fit with older jaded um, individuals but it fits with the younger generation and there's I don't recall there being any or much sex in it um but it, there was nothing in it that i would say to a child or to a young adult actually don't read it it's really violent or it's really explicit but apart from the fact it had this incredibly dark theme but at the same time was very hopeful and i think that was that was a brilliant as we say perhaps a bridging book that takes you from the middle grade and young adult over to um adult books and i almost wish that had been around when i was a kid and could have read it it's, it's funny because when you when when i hear crossover i tend to think of books that have crossed the other way i tend to think of um well the 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 um the social conventions that have been established by books like the harry potter uh, the harry potter series and um his dark materials and so forth the 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 children's books and ya books that um adults have come to terms with being seen on the tube reading <laughs> well that's a good that's a good example but the way i i mean maybe it's just my unique way of looking at it but the way i look at it anybody could read a children and young adults book and yep. associate it with it. I think the stronger, the stronger way of looking at it is to say, well, is this an adult book that children could read? I mean, I was I read Mark Lawrence's Red Sister recently, which, apart from being able to beat a badger to death with it, was a very good book for for young adults. It was massively long, but there was nothing in it that would be inappropriate for a young adult audience. And yet, I wouldn't necessarily market it as young adults. I think that's for me. That's how I would prefer to describe crossover because it's. It is a book that crosses both boundaries, you know, could be read by either side. But I know that's not obviously there's some definition, some debate about what crossover actually means, because it's I suppose it's a bit like grimdark in that it's still forming a little bit and trying to find its its own boundaries. Oh, there's some debate about all the definitions. They're all vague. <laughs> they are. I say they're hints. That's all they are. They're not rules. There, there are no solid rules about what what should be in a book or who should read it. 
I mean, are there any particular way tropes that you don't like that you think that the genre needs to move away from, or or even any like tropes that you happen to just absolutely love about YA fiction that we've not touched on? To be honest, no, not really. <laughs> there's the thing is, in in terms of trope, tropes to be moved away from, there's no trope you can point to that hasn't been handled brilliantly by somebody at some point, and. I don't actually I don't think YA is quite as trope ridden as some people seem to think. It's incredibly varied and experimental and becoming more so by the day. Uh, if anything, I think it's haunted by perceived tropes. Now, I will sometimes hear someone banging on about how why is all YA is all about paranormal romances and love triangles and Mary Sue chosen ones. And after a while, I usually get the feeling that this person hasn't actually read much YA and assumes that it's all basically Twilight. <laughs> but yeah. there isn't there is a sort of a an element to what is popular at the moment and I think um particularly the young adults because I do uh, I volunteer with girl guides and when I spoke to some of my girls if one of them reads a book and likes it they will pass it on so I think I, I see what Francis is saying and there's not there isn't you know standard tropes but they do change a little bit um so it was all about Harry Potter then it was all about Twilight and you get a load of very cheap YA books coming on, you know, particularly now that you've got um, Kindles and, and, you know, kids can read things on their phones and stuff like that. And also, as I think it was Megan said about having stuff that you can read on the train without actually having, you know, to have a book, you can, it could be anything on your Kindle. Yeah, it and, can and absolutely be anything and you don't have to worry about people judging you. And I mean, this is why erotic fiction's done so well, but that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I don't worry about people judging me anyway. I mean, I, I'm insufficiently guilty about my guilty pleasures. Oh, I am too. I like to flaunt that I'm a bit <laughs> bit odd. It's fine. Well, I like to think if I'm reading a book, you know, whatever book it is, that maybe the author is somewhere on the train and they'll walk past me and see <laughs> that I'm reading it and then they'll give a little smile. So that, you know, I wouldn't be bothered whatever it was, even if it was point horror and somebody go, wow, I remember, you know, reading that when I was a kid or, oh, yes, yes, I, I wrote mm. for the point horror or something like that. You know, that wouldn't, that wouldn't bug me at all. I like the idea Absolutely. of sharing it off. I think absolutely. Yeah, well, we've, we've covered guilty pleasures before. We should be proud of what we like. It's fine. Like, Yay! You know, enjoy whatever you enjoy. That's fine. I absolutely agree. Couldn't agree more. <laughs> like on that note, another glass of wine. <laughs> I mean, I don't so... have any wine. I just thought I was going to clarify for that. You know, it's, it's very sad. sad oh, I'm so fear. sorry. No wine is here. Oh. Um, I was just going to say, like, what what books did you fall in love with when you were a teenager or maybe YA books that you've read now that you just really love and, and want people to read? Well, as, as I say, when I was younger, they didn't exactly have things called YA. But um, when I look back at, um, as I say, pretty much anything written by Nicholas Fisk, who was also my introduction to science fiction, he wrote, he wrote basically... Um, sometimes quite dark, superbly unpatronising science fiction for kids and teenagers. Um, Also, books like The Blue Hawk by Peter Dickinson. Again, now, this will be called YA. Again, dark, complex, really interesting, quite unique. Um, Zed for Zachariah. In terms of stuff being written now, um, Other Other Bound by Corin Dalfus, very good. Um, one by Sarah Crossan, obviously the Chaos Walking Trilogy by P- uh, by Patrick Ness, 
um, A Swift Cure Cry by um, Siobhan Dowd. These these are all things I tend to recommend to people. Oh, but there's so many. Oh, um, uh, yes, and, and Philip Reeve. Fantastic imagination mm-hmm. and be- beautiful turn of phrase and beautifully black and subtle sense of humour. Um, I love Mortal Engines. I thought that's a brilliant series. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. He also created one of my favourite characters, Hester. I thought she was just a work of genius. This, that, Indeed. Second, second book is probably my favourite in that. that um, so four book series, isn't it? A quartet. Yes. Yes, I love Hester. Dark and flawed and complex and extremely dangerous. Yes, as all women should be. <laughs> <laughs> no, she's a great character. So yeah. big thumbs up for Philip Reeve here. Indeed, absolutely. I mean, I love both The Lie Tree and uh, A Face Like Glass. They were definitely two of my, my favourite books of yours that I read. But I have to ask you, what is it with you and Destructive Plants? Because in The Lie Tree, <laughs> you've got The Lie Tree itself, which is quite a vicious little plant. And then in Caverna, you've got all the little trap lanterns that you go through. And they sort of, they're very useful, but also at the same time, very sinister and have such a strange and strong motif throughout a couple of books. I wondered if it was yeah, something. And occasionally in- they eat people. But don't give away spoilers. <laughs> but I'm apart not saying, from that. Um, yeah, they're not the only ones either. I'm back in Verdigree Deep. I, I have a, a rampaging supernatural Russian vine. Oh, that's right. Yes, that's quite right. So what is it then? Is it something in your past? Do you, are you a, a wannabe botanist or, or what is it? Oh, good grief, no. I've got a black thumb. I kill plants. I don't do it on purpose, but um, any, any plant left in my care will will die. I had a cacti that died of thirst. It was very embarrassing. Um, but no, I, I like I like taking normal, harmless seeming, passive seeming things and making them less so. Um, I'm fascinated by by plants anyway because there's there is something twining and tentacular and sometimes quite muscular looking about them. I and mean, if you've ever seen um, trees in old temples where basically it looks like the roots have erupted, scattering stones and and punched walls out of the way. Um, so I am fascinated by that insidious power in, in, in plants. But also, I just, as I say, I just, I like transforming the way readers see things. And I don't confine that to plants. Um, I've also created sinister and suspiciously animate supermarket trolleys, scissors, dolls, cinema screens and so forth basically i i just like to feel that my i like my readers to feel that nothing's what it seems and nowhere is really safe <laughs> this That's this extends w- to cheeses as well sorry i have to go on about the cheeses because i love cheese i have an obsession with cheese and i just love the fact that france's cheeses have moustaches and have to be like petted and rolled and and looked after like because as if they're you know going to explode at any moment that they have to be completely um looked after and, and stored perfectly and you know and they can't get upset because bad things happen if the cheeses get upset <laughs> it's just brilliant Thank you. Uh, you. You may have guessed this already, but I also like cheese, and I wrote some of those chapters <laughs> while hungry. Um, <laughs> I even went on a cheese making course, just a, a one day cheese making course, so that I could better describe things like the way in the curds and and how they'd feel and smell and and the consistency and everything. Uh, and partly because it was fun. Um, you know, making mozzarella is really fun. 
you, you have to stretch it and scrooge it and everything. That's that's part of it, a part of the process. Do you know what? This leads us on to a perfect bonus question. Is that the weirdest research you've ever done? Or have you done something weirder for, you know, in pursuit of research? It depends on your definition of weird. I mean, I've scrambled around inside a number of volcanoes. Is that weirder? That's cool. That is definitely gets big. And I also ended up, there was this very nice woman at the London Transport Museum who put up with a lot of questions for me, which started off sensibly along the lines of, please tell me about 1920s trams. Um, yes, do they have electric lights? Um, do, do the windows on the, in the downstairs open? And eventually got onto things like, so if you had one that was tilted at about 45 degrees and was flying, <laughs> how easy would it be to throw someone out of one of the windows? Um, and she was very nice about it under the circumstances. This is something I've discovered. If you're a writer and you contact people and ask them questions, including increasingly weird questions, most people are really nice about answering. So well, is uh, I'm a writer the, the best get-out-of-jail-free card? Um, it seems to be, but I think just people are really tolerant. And, and my <laughs> friends are also very nice about me ending a conversation we've had, sometimes about quite an intense subject, by saying, um, do you mind if I use that in a book sometime? And they generally say, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, well, maybe that's, I, I'd say that, you know, perhaps they they feel like, you know, they're, they're contributing to, you know, the, the great art of literature that some of their uh, sentences will one day grace the shelves of a bookshop so that's cool <laughs> or it could be that i just have extremely generous friends <laughs> generous and tolerant all right so to wrap things up francis what is your latest book or one coming out and why should people be reading it pitch it to us my latest book is called a skin full of shadows um, it's set in the early English Civil War, and it's a story of heredity, uh, a very old house, an even older family, and a very angry, very dead bear. Um, what's the bear's name? He's a bear. <laughs> he doesn't have a name. Oh, I'm disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, he gets called Bear. A lot. Well, that's a good strong name. <laughs> well, it's, it's a good way of picking him out of the lineup. The, 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 you know, other people with names aren't bears. <laughs> I mean, I certainly, I don't think he thinks of himself as having a name. <clears throat> Clearly, no story is complete without a big dead bear. <laughs> big dead nameless bear. Oh no, that's just sad. <laughs> It's not a sequel, because all your books seem to be very standalone. Are you ever going to write a sequel to any of them? I've written one. Ah. My fourth book is a sequel to my first, but that's the only sequel I've ever written. Um, I might write more sequels in, in, in that particular series. Um, the other books I've written, I think, are basically standalone. I was going to say, will you tell our, our listeners which of the two books that are the, the sequels so that they can go and look them up? The first book is uh, is Fly by Night. The sequel is Twilight Robbery. Wonderful. Uh, well, thank you very, very much for talking to us. It's been really nice. And uh, obviously, well, hopefully, our listeners agree with us that YA fiction is fantastic and has so much to offer and you should, 
if you're an adult, you shouldn't be ashamed to read it. And if you're a teenager, I hope you're enjoying the really rich reading experiences that you have available to you now, which some of us missed out on when we were a bit younger. But thank you very much for joining us today, Francis. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to Breaking the Glass Slipper on women in science fiction, fantasy and horror.